Remember Jiffy Peanut Butter, Mr. Monopoly's Monocle, and Shazam starring Sinbad? Really? Are you sure you aren't merging Jif brand peanut spread with Skippy? Confusing Mr. Peanut's eyepiece for rich Uncle Pennybags's? And recasting Shaquille O'Neal in Kazam? False memory syndrome, FMS, is to recollect things that never happened via obfuscation or persuasion. In 1974, studies were conducted where screen film footage of an auto accident at varying speeds was shown to control groups. Afterward, the factions were implored to share thoughts on how fast the cars were going when they smashed. But for each new cluster, smashed would get replaced with verbs like contacted or bumped, changing the answers dramatically. Researchers inquired if participants recalled the broken glass. There was no broken glass, but they remembered it when asked about it. Wording of the question influenced the answer. Even changing the article triggers false memory, like showing a picture that has lots of items in it, then quizzing either, did you see a ball? Or, did you see the ball? Again, no ball in the picture. The takeaway, terminology matters. In the past decade, FMS has come to be known as the Mandela Effect thanks to Fiona Broom, a paranormal consultant who misremembered the bus boycotting, apartheid-abrogating black pimpernel dying while incarcerated in the 1980s. Except that the unruly lawyer was released from his 27-year high treason sentence for rallying malcontents to burn ID documents and sabotage civic works operations and military targets in 1990, due primarily to a decade's worth of high-profile lobbying from the UN Security Council. Madiba, as he was sometimes called, became the first black president of South Africa, where he provided free health care to pregnant women and kids under age six, and installed telephone service, schools, electricity, and water for nearly three million people, earning him a Nobel Peace Prize and the honorific Father of the Rainbow Nation. As tourism increased, Mandela was globetrotting visits with Pope John Paul II, Margaret Thatcher, George H.W. Bush, and Fidel Castro, whose history will absolve me discourse inspired Nelson's three-hour I Am Prepared to Die dissertation of 1964. Quote, I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to see realized. But if it needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. End quote. This desire for classless population gained him a reputation as a communist incendiary. When receiving Libya's Muammar al-Qaddafi International Prize for Human Rights and the Lenin Peace Prize of the USSR, a lot of Western governments got in a huff. 
Mandela's point of view was, quote, the enemies of countries of the West are not our enemies, end quote. He then spoke against NATO's involvement in Kosovo and the Iraq War, which kept him on the U.S. terrorism watch list until 2008 in the face of George W. Bush having given him the Presidential Medal of Freedom six years earlier. Madiba died in 2013. For a man so prevalent in world news and so lavishly dressed in his signature vibrant batik shirts, it seems impossible that anyone could undershoot his death date by three decades. Yet, our dear paranormal specialist was not alone in her overpass, and because of it, the Marxist-leaning one-term president by choice gets this ramification named for him. It's almost tempting to chastise such an error. Still, there are similar examples of universally incorrect acceptances of truth to our everyday lives that may indeed reveal you to be a victim of the Mandela Effect. A significant component to much of the specimens of forgettability I found are reminiscent of the telephone game. You know that one, right? Where you line up 20 people, whisper a detailed message to a person on one side, and have them mumble it to the guy next to them until it reaches the end and have that final individual speak aloud the communication that inevitably gets altered somewhere down the channel? An anomaly occurs. Specific minutiae get added, modified, and or omitted. So, too, have tales of folklore, historical icons, and conventional rhetoric fallibly come down to us through the ages. As a consequence, terms we've heard in time memoriam are often subject to fallout of this phenomenon to the point of reshaping the formulator's intention or acclaiming the wrong dignitary for having articulated it. Let's start with the Bible. We've all heard that blood is thicker than water, indicating that family presides above all else. But that's merely a portion of the good book motto, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the blood of the womb, suggesting the antithesis of family first that the vital fluids of comrades on the battlefield outweigh the genealogical binds of ancestry and marriage. Another King James Bible darling, money is the root of all evil, has been entirely repurposed by those catering wisdom to their agendas. As verse 610 from 1 Timothy pronounces, quote, The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. End quote. Which doesn't admonish the cash for being wicked, it counsels the currency enthusiast on damnation. Further proof that quotations out of context alter what the scribe laced with ink, I submit these full-size parables that our fun-size society has dumped the back ends of. Great minds think alike, small minds rarely differ. 
Rome wasn't built in a day, but it burned in one. All things come to he who waits. They come, but often come too late. And curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought it back. Nobody ever mentions the latter half of these classic locutions that quash the import of inquisitiveness, flock mentality, and truth of Rome's demise. The modern mind thinks of Shakespeare's prose as inviolable and reels at the notion that language he invented 400 years ago is still used today. Words like dwindle, bandit, lackluster, dauntless, swagger, and hundreds more. Even dialogue. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? But just like underscoring video footage of puppies with Sarah McLaughlin music to make them sadder, the bard's animus gets twisted through exclusion. Now is the winter of our discontent, his ominous Game of Thrones-like soliloquy from Richard III, conveys the opposite sentiment of the rest of the passage. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the son of York. It's a metaphor comparing the arrival of this son of York to the changing of the seasons. It's a good thing. And for as many expressions as Billy Shakes has provided, though some disputed, he also gets recognized for things written long after his death. Restoration period playwright William Congreve's Music Hath Charms to Soothe the Savage Beast and Heaven Has No Rage Like Love to Hatred Turned, Nor Hell a Fury Like a Woman Scorned, regularly get tied to Shakespeare, which seems like a compliment to both men. Congreve's good friend and Doctor of Divinity, Jonathan Swift, could be so malicious and cutting by way of his satirically poetic words that his paradoxical straight-faced style has come to be known as Swiftian. Like William Congreve, Swift was an Anglican member of the Whig Party and weary of Catholic dominance over Europe. He wrote a mock article about child cannibalism titled a modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people in Ireland being a burden on their parents or country and for making them beneficial to the public. Quote, I have been assured by a very knowing American of my acquaintance in London that a young healthy child well nursed is at a year old a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food. End quote. Living in an era where leaflets could get you hanged, Jonathan recurrently used pseudonyms. Isaac Bickerstaff, M.B. Drapier, and Lemuel Gulliver, i.e. Gulliver's Travels. Variants of his shibboleth, Falsehood Flies and Truth Comes Limping After It, have wrongly been ascribed to Thomas Jefferson, Mark Twain, and Winston Churchill. Scattered curiosity, Gulliver's Travels inspired the French novel La Planète des Songes, a.k.a. Monkey Planet, a.k.a. Planet of the Apes. 
Alexander Pope was another radical whose scathing essays got him in hot water with politicians and castigators, to the point where Pope was resigned to wield a pistol while walking his Great Dane bounce. Though an admirer of the Swan of Avon, Pope's edition of Shakespeare's folio cut over 1,500 lines. He excelled in memorable idioms such as Fools rush in where angels fear to tread, damning with faint praise, charms strike the sight but merit wins the soul, all nature is but art unknown to thee, and the one we savor half of, a little learning is a dangerous thing, drink deep or taste not the Pyrian spring. His best-known work is The Rape of the Lock. Sounds worse than what it is. A mordant tale of discord betwixt Arabella Firmer and Lord Peter, who clipped a lock of her hair without condonation. Upon Alexander Pope's deathbed, the attending physician remarked that he seemed to be on the mend, prompting one final commentary, quote, Here am I dying of a hundred good symptoms, end quote. Romantic movement opium addict Samuel Taylor Coleridge coined the expression suspension of disbelief, and his rhyme of the ancient mariner gave us three widely used and misused elucidations, including a sadder and a wiser man, having an albatross around one's neck, and Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Rhyme was so influential to author Mary Shelley that she advertises it twice in Frankenstein. Coleridge, too, contributed evolved attitudes towards Shakespeare, who had grown out of favor by the 1800s by giving lectures on the significance of Hamlet a tragedy previously panned by the witty French historian, poet, and playwright François-Marie Arouet, otherwise known as Voltaire, the caffeine fiend known for saying, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Well, kinda. Not really. You see, biographer Evelyn Beatrice Hall better known as S.G. Talentire, wrote the expletive a century later to describe the agitator's demeanor in The Friends of Voltaire. Having commercial success in his lifetime, Voltaire used his celebrity as a voice for civil liberties and to denounce the Roman Catholic Church with commentaries like If God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. The more often a stupidity is repeated, the more it gets the appearance of wisdom. It is difficult to free fools from the chains they revere. Common sense is not so common. To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. And it is dangerous to be right when the government is wrong. Heads of state are tempting, albeit risky, targets of condemnation. Unless, of course, the tyrant in question has long since been dead. 
as was the case with 19th century chronicler Lord John Dahlberg Acton's theorem of Napoleon Bonaparte, Henry VIII, and Julius Caesar. The frequently edited, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. A long line of great men have been lionized as American patriots throughout the folklore of the nation. According to primary sources, Paul Revere did not howl, The British are coming! while making his midnight ride, but rather, The regulars are out. And young George Washington's cherry-chopping I-cannot-tell-a-lie confession was an outright fabrication injected into the 5th edition publication of The Life of Washington as a means of guiding American youths with an ideal. There's a sucker born every minute. A wonderfully practical self-defacing dictum that the greatest showman of the 1850s, P.T. Barnum, used as a marketing tool for all of his eccentric endeavors. The funny thing is, the watchword was devised by one of Barnum's rivals attempting to vilify the con man, and it just backfired miserably when Phineas embraced and exploited the axiom. Murphy's Law, right? But was it really Murphy's concept? In 1866, Mathematician Augustus de Morgan penned, quote, The first experiment already illustrates a truth of the theory, well confirmed by practice. Whatever can happen will happen if we make trials enough, end quote. And a decade later, the American Dialect Society elicited a report that suggested, quote, It is found that anything that can go wrong at sea does go wrong sooner or later, so it is not to be wondered that owners prefer the safe to the scientific. The human factor cannot be safely neglected in planning machinery." End quote. So it's a little misleading that this perception has been branded with the surname of a high-speed rocket aerospace engineer from the 1950s, U.S. Major Edward A. Murphy. In truth, he did not care much for the way that Murphy's Law has been commonly understood as anything that can go wrong will go wrong because it gives the impression that everything will always go wrong. And also because what he alleged was, quote, if there's more than one way to do a job and one of those ways will result in disaster, then somebody will do it that way. End quote. U.S. Air Force Major John Paul Stapp understood this inevitability, professing, quote, We do all of our work in consideration of Murphy's Law. End quote. This next one needs to be examined because it has been perverted for generations as a justification for bad behavior. My country, right or wrong which is an about-face deviation to Carl Schurz's entire Provisionary Proclamation of 1872, my country right or wrong, if right, to be kept right, and if wrong, to be set right. 
a credo taken seriously by W. Epaminondas, Adrastus Blab, and Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass, who are all, conveniently, the same man, Samuel Langhorne Clemens. His ultimate anonym, Mark Twain, was conceived as he traversed the Mississippi River training to be a steamboat pilot. It is barked when the ship identifies, or marks, the sounding line water to be two, twain, fathoms deep, the minimum needed for steamboat passage. Mark might have remained on Big Muddy had the Civil War not halted the strategic commercial waterway. Though enlisted as a Confederate soldier for two weeks before going AWOL, he supported abolition and emancipation, saying, quote, Lincoln's proclamation not only set the black slaves free, but set the white man free also. Our Civil War was a blot on our history, but not as great a blot as the buying and selling of Negro souls, end quote. As the cleverly outspoken, feline-energized rascal's red hair morphed to gray, he took to public speaking, quite notably as vice president of the Anti-Imperialist League of New York. Twain had once been in support of U.S. presence in Hawaii and involvement in the Filipino Revolution of the Spanish-American War. But after absorbing the Treaty of Paris that ended the conflict, he was convinced, quote, We do not intend to free, but subjugate the people of the Philippines. We have gone there to conquer, not to redeem. It should, it seems to me, be our pleasure and duty to make those people free and let them deal with their own domestic questions in their own way. And so... I am an anti-imperialist. I am opposed to having the eagle put its talons on any other land. I am said to be a revolutionist in my sympathies, by birth, by breeding, and by principle. I am always on the side of the revolutionists, because there never was a revolution unless there were some oppressive and intolerable conditions against which to revolute." End quote. The only known motion picture footage of the father of American literature was Thomas Edison's 1909 short, The Prince and the Pauper, the tale that launched the oft-parodied life-switching doppelganger scenario that would one day become It Takes Two, starring the Olsen twins. Privy to the innovations of the age, Clemens marveled at watching Edison's erratic rival Nikola Tesla make lightning and befriended Alexander Graham Bell, who enjoined Twain to invest in his latest gadget, the telephone. Mark declined and instead got into debt over failed concoctions he did bankroll, such as a trivia game and the page typesetting machine. Ernest Hemingway claimed, quote, All modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn, end quote. Which may very well be true because so many attributes are erroneously attached to the sagacious oddball, like 
I have never killed a man, but I have read many obituaries with great pleasure. Sounds a lot like Twain, but comes from the fiery country lawyer who defended the evolution teaching John Scopes through the monkey trials against the state of Tennessee, Clarence Darrow, another anti-imperialist league member who opposed the annexation of the Philippines. A few of my favorite genuine Mark Twain epigrams, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, never put off till tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow, Classic, a book which people praise but don't read. Kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Get your facts first, then you can distort them as you please. And if it's your job to eat a frog, it's best to do it first thing in the morning. And if it's your job to eat two frogs, it's best to eat the biggest one first. Fictional people are also susceptible to misquotation. Sherlock Holmes does not spout elementary, my dear Watson, in any of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's tales of the cocaine-injecting Baker Street sleuth. It was an invention of the silver screen. The same holds true for a catchphrase of a man raised by primates, me Tarzan, you Jane. It will not be found in Edgar Rice Burroughs' seminal Tarzan of the Apes, a blatant ripoff of Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book, whose comment of Burroughs' creation was to, quote, find out how bad a book he could write and get away with it, end quote. In the novel, Tarzan presents himself to Jane as, quote, Tarzan, the killer of beasts, and many black men, end quote. Olympic swimmer Johnny Weissmuller dumbed it down for the films with the far less racist, me Tarzan, you Jane. It should be relatively apparent that Bram Stoker did not put the words, I want to suck your blood, into the pestilent mandibles of his anti-hero, Dracula and it is wholly absent from the 1931 Universal Celluloid starring Bela Lugosi. So where the heck does it come from? I was unable to find a definitive answer, but Tim Burton paid homage to the stereotypical vampire slogan in 1994's Ed Wood by giving Dr. Tom Mason the exclamation while body-doubling Lugosi, who died before Plan 9 from Outer Space wrapped. The 1930s provided another flick that society has concocted flap from, when a wicked queen, threatened by the beauty of a scullery maid, who happens to be her stepdaughter, seeks guidance from her clairvoyant speculum by demanding magic mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest one of all? But nearly everybody eliminates the first word and repeats the second, creating the more awkward mirror, mirror on the wall. Scattered curiosity, screenwriters whittled down a lengthy roster of names before settling on the seven dwarfs we know and love today. Some rejected contenders were... Burpy, jumpy, sniffy, lazy, 
nifty, tubby, dizzy, baldy, deffy, shorty, swift, and stuffy. The picture's success found producers conceiving a prequel surrounding the provenance of the dwarfs. And I have no idea why they aren't cashing in on this right now. Though Disney did pioneer a marketing strategy that lives on today, as Snow White was the first American movie to sell a soundtrack, including such hits as Someday My Prince Will Come, Whistle While You Work, and Hi-Ho. Music has been a major peripheral of ostentatious crowd-pullers since day one. Before talkies, theaters accentuated picture shows with live organists who helped establish mood, tone, car chase music, and to let you know who the villain was. Can you imagine Jaws without the da-dum, da-da-dum? A tour de force that incorporated songs as essential ingredients to the storyline and proved Humphrey Bogart to be a capable romantic lead is a World War II histronic set in a nightclub in the south of France, Casablanca. Now, keep in mind that the war was still going on when it was being filmed, and a good portion of the cast was comprised of actual European refugees which is evident in the intense dueling national anthem scene where swelling tears of national pride in everyone's eyes were all too real. Director Michael Curtis was clever to use melodious plot devices as a solution to a problem presented by the motion picture production codes of the day, in that Elsa Lund could not leave her husband, Victor Laszlo, for her bygone love interest, Rick Blaine. The only reason the pair hooked up in the flashbacks was because they believed Victor to be dead. When the married couple finds themselves on the run from the Germans into the diverse sanctuary of Rick's Café American, Ilsa spots Sam, the piano player, and requests, Play it once, Sam, for old time's sake. He feigns ignorance, and she assertively repeats, Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. A melody his employer has explicitly forbidden Sam to perform. Later, a despondent Rick commands, You played it for her. You can play it for me. If she can stand it, I can. Play it. But the Maxim fans enshrine, Play it again, Sam, is never voiced at all though it is the title of a Woody Allen parody. Interestingly, the actor who played Sam, Dooley Wilson, was a drummer who fake played along with a real pianist off-screen. It's him singing, though. Scattered Curiosity, Here's Looking at You, Kid, was never in the script. It is a Humphrey Bogart original lifted from overheard conversations had while the cast played poker between takes. Bonus curiosity, when Ted Turner did the unthinkable and decided to colorize Casablanca, he altered the photo play to such a degree that the Library of Congress 
determined that Turner Entertainment needed to register for a new copyright. Ted's take, quote, Casablanca is one of the handful of films that really doesn't have to be colorized. I did it because I wanted to. All I'm trying to do is protect my investment. End quote. The Bogart estate's response, quote, If you're going to colorize Casablanca, why not put arms on the Venus de Milo? End quote. Speaking of artistic limbs, have you ever heard this interview zinger from Ginger Rogers? I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backward and in high heels? Great dig, but Ginger's autobiography revealed this evaluation of her former dance partner as not her own. Starlets of the day were keener to attack one another. After having to share the screen with Marilyn Monroe in one of her first cinematic appearances, Betty Davis and her sharp-tongued All About Eve co-stars designated Monroe as a, quote, graduate of the Copacabana School of Dramatic Art, end quote. And Marilyn was conscious of how she was perceived by fellow lady thespians, exuding the belief that well-behaved women seldom make history. So it's understandable why the brusque assessment got allocated to her despite having died 14 years antecedent to its first oration by the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of A Midwife's Tale, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who calls her treatise a Puritan inhumation, quote, the silent work of ordinary people, end quote. Legendary baseball player, manager, coach Leo Lip Durisher popularized the saying, capture lightning in a bottle but has mainly been characterized by his off-the-cuff comment, the nice guys are all over there in seventh place, which somehow got headlined as, nice guys wind up in last place, scoffs Lippy, in newspapers. With prevalence of the soundbite growing, Leo made the clarifying statement, quote, I never did say that you can't be a nice guy and win, I said if I was playing third base and my mother rounded third with the winning run, I'd trip her up, end quote. Here is an excerpt from his autobiography, Nice Guys Finish Last. Quote, The Giants, led by Mel Ott, began to come out of their dugout to take their warm-up. Without missing a beat, I said, Take a look at number four there. A nicer guy never drew breath than that man there. I called off his players' names as they came marching up the steps behind him. Walker Cooper, Mize, Marshall, Kerr, Gordon, Thompson. Take a look at them. All nice guys. They'll finish last. Nice guys. Finish last. I said, they lose a ball game, they go home. They have a nice dinner, they put their heads down on the pillow and go to sleep. Poor Mel Ott, he can't sleep at night. He wants to win. He's got a job to do for the owner of the ball club. But that doesn't concern the players. They're all getting good money. I said, you surround yourself with this type of player. They're real nice guys, sure. How are you? How are you? And you're going to finish down in the cellar with them. Because they think they're giving you 100% on the ball field, and they're not. Give me some scratching, diving, hungry ball players who come to kill you. Now Stanky's the nicest gentleman who ever drew breath. But when the bell rings, you're his mortal enemy. 
That's the kind of guy I want playing for me. That was the context to explain why Eddie Stanky was so valuable to me by comparing him to a group of far more talented players who were, in fact, in last place. Frankie Graham did write it up that way. In that respect, Graham was the most remarkable reporter I ever met. He would sit there and never take a note, and then you pick up the paper and find yourself quoted word for word. But the other writers who picked it up ran two sentences together to make it sound as if I were saying that you couldn't be a decent person and succeed. End quote. Lippy was perhaps the nicest of guys by promoting acceptance of Jackie Robinson to his team in 1947. Quote, I do not care if the guy is yellow or black or if he has stripes like a fucking zebra. I'm manager of this team, and I say he plays. What's more, I say he can make us all rich. And if any of you cannot use the money, I will see that you are all traded. End quote. Scattered curiosity, during an 11-year hiatus from managing ball clubs, Leo hosted the NBC Comedy Hour, Jackpot Bowling, and played himself on episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies and the Munsters to scout Jethro Clampett and Herman Munster as an all-star pitcher and home run slugger. Durisher's return to baseball found him in the Windy City as manager of my boys in blue, the Chicago Cubs. But he left without giving Philip K. Wrigley a title. Lip was the very first manager to win 500 games with three separate ball clubs, and getting thrown out of 95 games. Another Diamond Park player, manager, coach, nice guy, who unwittingly forged dozens of well-known aphorisms, is 18-time All-Star Lawrence Peter Yogi Berra. Nicknamed so by Jack McGuire when he saw a young Berra sitting cross-legged like a yogi from India as he waited on deck to bat. As a catcher for the New York Yankees, whom he signed with ahead of attaining a Purple Heart by virtue of World War II's Normandy invasion, Barra caught the only perfect game in the annals of the World Series. He left the Yanks in 1965 to manage their crosstown cousins, the two-year-old New York Mets. Yogi is best celebrated among non-baseball fans, for his malapropisms and anomalous remarks. Most distinctly, a response he gave during a mid-season interview regarding the Mets' last place status, it ain't over till it's over. And he was right, because he brought the team out of a slump and into the World Series, but was fired two seasons later and returned to the Yankees where they started a successful streak superstitiously owed to the believedly lucky Barra. The old professor Casey Stengel claimed that Yogi could, quote, fall in a sewer and come up with a gold watch, end quote. Some popular Yogiisms? When you come to a fork in the road, take it. 90% of baseball is mental, the other half is physical. You can observe a lot by watching... It's deja vu all over again. 
a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore, and always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't go to yours. I know what you're thinking. If Yogi murmured these things, then why is it in this episode? Well, because according to him, quote, I really didn't say everything I said, end quote. Something that Leonard McCoy, Bones from Star Trek, can relate to. Because he never hollered, Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a fill-in-the-blank. The only swear in the entire 1960s television series was episode 28, stardate 3134, City on the Edge of Forever, when Captain James Tiberius Kirk cried, Let's get the hell out of here! The damn it, Jim, seems to have gained traction from Dan Aykroyd's portrayal of Bones on a Saturday Night Live sketch. McCoy eventually did exclaim it on the big screen in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And while we're in space, close your eyes and picture another SNL alum, Chris Farley, talking into an oscillating fan and saying, Luke, I am your father. And now you know why manifolds of Padawans botch the excerpt and ruin your trivia night score. The spoiler of all spoiler exchanges goes as such. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. No, that's not true. That's impossible! A revelation European fans likely suspected all along because Darth Vader is derived from the Dutch and German words for Dark Father. Some super detailed Star Wars trivia for you. C-3PO is not entirely gold-plated. A portion of his right shin is anodized silver. And the word Ewok is non-existent in Return of the Jedi. The species is only known to us because of merchandising. Creator George Lucas manages to hide Easter eggs all over projects that he dips his toes into, routinely referencing one of his earliest works, the featurette Electronic Labyrinth THX 1138-4EB, later shortened to THX 1138. It can be seen on a license plate in American Graffiti, the prison cell Luke Skywalker transfers Chewbacca from when dressed as a stormtrooper in Star Wars, Spaceballs flips it into cell 8311, it is the wing number of a plane in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and is composed as Roman numerals MCXXXVIII in Dr. Henry Jones Sr.'s diary in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Even Luke Skywalker, initially Starkiller's first name, is borrowed from the director's last. And do any of you recall Harrison Ford's character in Apocalypse Now? Colonel G. Lucas. I really should devote an entire episode to the Francis Ford Coppola epic, as it is a miracle that the thing ever got finished. 
Poor Martin Sheen had a heart attack on location, prompting enlistment of his brother of B-movie royalty Joe Estevez to serve as a body and voice double for portions of the exploit. And the notoriously difficult Marlon Brando showed up to the set late and so overweight that the ending needed to be completely restructured. The Emprise is littered with graphic bullions, but too often does Robert Duvall's devastatingly colorful Charlie Don't Surf monologue get abbreviated with only the first and last portions. The elongated version, quote, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You know, one time we had a hill bomb for 12 hours. When it was all over, I walked up. We didn't find one of them. Not one stinking dink body. The smell, you know, that gasoline smell, the whole hill smells like victory. End quote. Ironically, for Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore, after the movie shot in Southeast Asia, surfing, a sport the native Filipinos had never seen before, instantly became one of their most beloved pastimes. Scattered curiosity... Martin Sheen's son, Charlie, can be spotted as an extra in Apocalypse Now, setting up a gag which pays off 14 years later in Hot Shots Part 2 when Martin and Charlie pass by one another on river patrol boats and clamor, I loved you in Wall Street! Reciting television and movie repartee, bonds people in ways that are indisputable with events like Comic-Con, Lebowski Fest, and midnight screenings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But fans don't normally reenact acceptance speeches from award ceremonies unless they really, really like them. As in 1984, when Sally Field won her second Oscar for Places in the Heart. Her decades-long successes from The Flying Nun to Smokey and the Bandit should have been proof enough for Gidget that you like me, you really like me. And I'm sure it was. Because that isn't exactly what she said. The whole peroration is far more innovative. A recall to her first Oscar win five years prior for Norma Ray. Quote, this means so much more to me this time. I don't know why. I think the first time I hardly felt it because it was all so new. I owe a lot to my cast, to my players, to Lindsay and John and Danny and Ed and Amy and my little friends Jeannie and Yankton. I owe a lot to my family for holding me together and loving me and having patience with this obsession of me. But I want to thank you to you. I haven't had an orthodox career and I've wanted more than anything to have your respect. The first time I didn't feel it, but this time, I feel it. And I can't deny the fact that you like me. Right now, you like me. Thank you. End quote. And if you like us right now, and I mean, you kind of would have to a little bit, you just listened to this entire episode... Please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts from. We'll see you next time.
like to help us keep the curiosities coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.